As we prepare to welcome our panel, I actually want to just speak quickly about you guys. Um, today we're welcoming prime ministers, ministers, leaders, innovators, and advocates from well over 15 countries. Uh, you represent an unparalleled group of changemakers committed to building a better, fairer, and more prosperous world. And you represent the idea that politics can and must be a force for good. You help make progressive politics the force that it is. So, our panel today consists of four leaders who have been making sure that the world is becoming a more progressive place for everyone. Uh, the panel will be led by Sapria Davidi, Director of Policy and Engagement at McGill's Center for Media, Technology and Democracy, and a member of Canada's 2020 Advisory Board. Je vous invite à vous joindre à moi pour accueillir très chaleureusement, de manière montréalaise, nos panelistes. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome, Montreal welcome, to uh, Sanna Marin, former par uh, Prime Minister of Finland, Jacinda Ardern, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jonas Gaard-Stur, Prime Minister of Norway, and of course, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I am Spree Devetti, uh, and let's kick this off. I, I, I understand that we're a little bit um, pressed for time, so I'm just going to get jump right into the hot button stuff right away for fun. Um, our international rules-based order and democratic values more generally are being challenged, um, seemingly all over the world. The planet's on fire. Um, we're in a really uncertain time economically. So how do we exactly go about as progressives offering people hope and that there is a better possibility when the world can kind of feel like a dumpster fire these days? Oh, yeah, you first, yeah. Yeah, you first, yeah. But, yeah. It's hometown kid, yeah. I think, first of all, um, you're absolutely right that it, it really feels pretty awful for a whole bunch of people out there. And they see it in the news and they see it you know, online and they look at you know, war in Europe and climate change impacts and everything. But what it comes down to is they're having trouble paying the mortgage. They can't find an affordable apartment. Grocery bills are going up. They're worried about the future in general and specifically for themselves and their kids. And progressives can come and talk about, oh, we need to build a better world. If we're not responding to where people are on a daily lay, then we're not going to be connecting. with. And the secret that sort of the right wing has and populists have and people who are, um, you know, not as fussed around de democratic values have is they could just reflect back and amplify the very real anger and frustration and anxiety that people have. And people feel like they're being seen and they're hurt. But when progressives come forward and say, you know, we can build a better world that is fairer for everyone and you know, we're going to do well and we're going to build a brighter future. These are all aspirational things that it's hard to get up to when you're stuck at the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So what we need to do a better job of as progressives is make the argument that we've been making for a long time now, that a truly inclusive 
economy is a stronger economy. That progressive policies, things like $10 a day childcare that we're bringing in here in Canada, model on something that's been here in Quebec for 25 years, uh, moving forward on things like a Canada child benefit, moving forward on reconciliation to make sure that we're able to create real partnerships with Indigenous people to get big projects built around our natural resources, that we're building stronger, inclusive societies with better opportunities for small businesses, that government can take an active role in creating the conditions to build more housing. These are the things we need to be talking about. And progressives, we fall into the same traps all the time when the right want to draw us into culture wars on issues of identity or wokeness. We've got to be able to say, yes, we'll always be there to stand up for people's rights. But we're also going to be there to put food on the table, to make sure you have good jobs in a changing world, to focus on the middle class and people working hard to join it. And getting that narrative, which is not as easy as just reflecting back and amplifying anger, but that is providing real solutions that people can see and feel and know that we're on the right track. That's the challenge that we're facing when everything feels like dross. And we need to show that, no, our institutions work and we can actually respond to these challenges in a tangible, individual way. I agree. I agree. And actually, we were discussing earlier uh, about uh, many matters that, that really worries people these days. Wildfires, violence, crime, um, drug use, social problems, homelessness. All the problems that people see every day and people are not stupid. They are seeing that everything very difficult and worrying is happening every day uh, all across the world. Whether it's climate change, loss of biodiversity, uh, equality taking leaves backwards, whether it's human rights that's being questioned, the rule-based order, people are not stupid. And they want answers and they want that political leadership that really cares about them, that really cares about these matters. So I think we should be very honest. We should have a reality check. What's the world today? And we should be very straightforward, very honest, see the problems that people are facing every day and then give the solutions that Justin uh, was talking about. So see the problems of the world and also see the problems of everyday lives. Uh, I think we have so much to give as uh, pro progressive leaders, progressive parties, but we also need to work together because these kind of problems that we are seeing each of our countries, they are happening also elsewhere. Uh, for example, homelessness that we were discussing earlier, that it's a huge problem in many countries, in Canada, in the States, also many countries in Europe. Uh, we should find uh, solutions together. And actually, Finland is one of the few countries in the world that has been able to reduce homelessness. And we have this home first policy and we have been actively involved in this matter. So, so I think handling and tackling these problems that people are seeing every day, giving solutions to them, I think this is one way to have that trust, to gain that trust from people. Pranish, sorry, I want to tweak the question slightly for you um, and focus specifically on climate. Um, you know, the last election that you won was dubbed the climate election. Um, Norway has taken decisive action on climate change. Um, like Canada, you also produce oil. Um, how do you sell a progressive argument for climate change, um, you know, action 
while everybody's worried about what their gas tank costs. Yeah. I come out of local elections where we did could have done better because we, we faced the challenge of rising prices, interest rates, and it hits people's economy and daily life. And it's ba basically a very hard time making other points when that is the reality of every day, as Justin just said, you know, they see this in, in, in every sense. So we have to be careful about all other agendas that they are not kind of messed up or mixed into this in the wrong way. For me, the climate change thing is really about trying to formulate it in a way that you cut emissions and create jobs, showing that you can create an economy that is going to create jobs, going to create new opportunities, um, while achieving the climate obligations, bringing these abstract Paris obligations, the Fit for 55 France, bring that back into the daily life of community and show that there are opportunities. And there are plenty, uh, really. What I've you know, been through then a regional election campaign in 350 communities in Norway, I've never seen before the following, that the big themes of our times that you could discuss as conferences like this really now come down at the local level and they mean something. Demography. Population over 80. When I was health minister in Norway 10 years ago, the population over 80 went down. Now, po the post-Second World War generation is coming in, so every mayor will have to pre prepare for that. Renewable energy is not an abstract. It's going to happen everywhere, and you have to produce more renewable energy, more grid, and it's going to happen in a local community, and it's going to be debate about those grids and the, the wind onshore and offshore. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine, there's a Ukrainian refugee in every municipality in my country. And it's a big hole in my budget to support Ukraine militarily, economically, humanitarian support. So we, we, we have to bake that into our progressive value base, where I believe we have an opportunity, because for me, in politics, it's really about what, how do we make the social contract? How do, we, how do we make equity work for the economy? It's not only a political objective. We believe that a more equitable economy will provide more jobs, more opportunity, better for all, you know, those on the top and those who are suffering further down. But it has to be concrete. And I think that's the challenge of, of our movement uh, and conferences like this, is to move it from the value base to the very concrete options, as Sanna said, on housing. What can we learn from each other? How can we create something which is meaningful on cutting emission, creating jobs. How can I tell the people, I ask my generation when I meet people out there in the industry, I said, where, 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 where did you start? Well, I started building oil platforms. So what do you do now? I build offshore wind platforms. And, and the reason why I salute him or her is that they take their experience and we value it and use it for new purposes. And I asked somebody else in the industry and said, what are you drilling out there on the in the North Sea now? They're not drilling for oil. They are drilling for reservoirs for depositing CO2. But they have the experience from this further work. So this is the, I think, for us to be there with them, create these opportunities and show that there is a... Our movement will die if it is not, does not maintain some kind of optimistic vision, what we can achieve. And it's hard to be optimistic when you take part by part of, of negative news. But I think believe opportunity is there. That is what can what, what can drive both communities and individuals. You see, a lot of the progressive policies that are proposed are popular, um, but the discourse and debate around them 
ends up being so wildly toxic and polarized, particularly online. Um, I believe you have some experience in online vitriol. Um, how should progressives be communicating our policies and, and cutting through some of the vitriolic noise that exists in these spaces? You've really started with all of, you know, those nice light quick fire rounds where one gets to know the panel of it. Um, this is at the heart of, you know, what we as progressives are facing. And I will just give this slight disclaimer that, you know, when I left office, one of the things I wanted to do was go and spend a little bit of time thinking, uh, which feels very luxurious and quite a privileged thing to be able to do. But you have so little time when you're in office to sit back and reflect. You have to do, you have to be, you have to react. And so you've got me a little early on in that thinking piece. I'm 13 days in and I cannot tell you that I've resolved all of these issues in my mind yet. But I have some hot takes and reckons. I think the first thing is that you refer to it as a dumpster fire. It really matters that people see, I think, their leaders acknowledging that things are hard. And we can't stand there next to a dumpster on fire and not acknowledge that it's burning behind us. So speaking to what people are feeling, I think is a really incredibly important first step to demonstrating that we hear it, we see it, and that we're looking for those solutions. Now, one of the challenges then becomes, how do you build consensus around solutions? Well, the first thing is, I don't think people have the bandwidth to even have the debate around the poly crisis, and you can pick which crisis sits within that because there's a few to choose from. I don't think they have the bandwidth even for that discussion unless we're dealing with their basic needs as, as Justin said from the beginning. There's a beautiful quote from a Prime Minister of New Zealand that sometimes gets misquoted and I'm going to do that a little bit now, but his general gist was, everybody needs something to do, somewhere to live, someone to love and something to hope for. And we've always got to make sure that we get back to those basics and the policy prescription that we have in part because it gives people bandwidth to then have those bigger discussions. The second point, how do we create consensus around those big gnarly issues? Pick the areas where you need consensus. Now, as a progressive, of course, I want to have a society and a community where everyone can see that that natural disaster was exacerbated by climate change, if not caused by it. And I want people to be able to acknowledge that, but some people, they might never do that. But actually what we need them to agree with is the solution, not necessarily the problem in the first place. I read somewhere recently that there was someone in the southern part of the US who bought an EV because it made it quieter for them to sneak up on their prey when they were hunting. <laughs> hey, look, whatever it takes, but we spend, we spend a lot of time trying to get that agreement around the climate issue. And of course, because morally that feels important to us, Actually, the most important thing is the solution. So how do we build solutions that speak to those, those needs? Put in place, you know, insulation policies that means someone's home's going to be warmer and drier and cheaper to warm. Who wouldn't want that? Added bonus, it helps with the climate crisis. Make EVs cheaper, subsidize them if you need to. Social leasing schemes, whatever it takes, added bonus on that. It deals with the climate crisis, but it deals with the cost of living as well. Speak to the need because sometimes it's just not the bandwidth for the for the poly crisis. Prime Minister, so much has changed since when you were first elected in, in 2015. There's four prime ministers on this list. I'm looking at you, so I assume. So Prime Minister Trudeau. 
Um, you were first elected in 2015. Um, seems like a lifetime ago. For me, I can't imagine what it seems like for you. Um, yeah. How do you move forward in 2023 knowing that the 2015 game plan is, is, very, is outdated, perhaps, and there are new challenges and new worries and new anxieties? There are always new challenges and new worries. I mean, nobody thought we'd be back in war in Europe, and nobody thought we'd be um, dealing with a global pandemic, but we knew we'd be dealing with climate change and impacts of it. We knew uh, there was a rise in authoritarianism and a, and a hollowing out of, of, you know, a whole bunch of people in society who are worried about being left behind by the pace of change. That's why in 2015, we got elected focused on the middle class and people working hard to join it. And we put forward policies that were designed and focused on creating economic growth in a way that everyone could feel. In our first years, we lifted a million people out of poverty in Canada while at the same time creating a million new jobs. We cut child poverty in half with the Canada Child Benefit. We made reconciliation with Indigenous people a core part of our approach. And not just because it was the morally right thing to do, because we knew that if we're going to be able to get pipelines or uh, new, um, you know, new mines for lithium or whatever that we're going to need as resources in the world built, we needed to do it in trust and in partnership with Indigenous people who no longer trusted, with good reason, the Canadian government. We set forward an ambitious policy agenda that was for the benefit of Canadians. And the nice thing is, eight years later, after having said, you know, we need to take on the challenge of climate change, but also understand it's an opportunity around climate change. At first, it was all about the climate and the challenge and the need to step up and make sacrifices. If we hadn't been leading on climate change, we wouldn't be pointing at the thousands of jobs coming in with Volkswagen creating the first global gigafactory outside of Europe for creating electric batteries. We wouldn't have Stellantis uh, and others investing in the battery supply chain in Canada because we're providing clean energy, we're providing a vision that is serious about drawing in global investment that is responsible. We're creating jobs because of that progressive agenda at the same time as we've been dealing with, well, <laughs> complicated times. Trump, pandemic, war in Europe, crises around Canada being on fire this summer because of the impacts and exacerbated by climate change. We got elected to put the focus on building a strong, inclusive economy that worked for all Canadians and to stand up for science and data, to stand up for rules and the rules-based order and democratic values. Every single one of those is more important now than it even was in 2015. So the answer is, we've got a lot to do. We've done a lot, but there's a lot more that we're gonna have to do if we're gonna make sure that Canadians and everyone around the world sees a path through these difficult times, not just for them, but for their kids, for their neighbors, for their community, wherever they are in the country or around the world. Senate, hostile state actors are becoming increasingly emboldened. Um, and again, I believe you know a thing or two about hostile state actors. Um, 
And it's interesting because often it feels as though they're winning. Um, how should progressive governments be navigating in a time where you regularly have coordinate state coordinated disinformation campaigns, let's say, or inorganic activity flooding online spaces? Um, what's a progressive answer to the rise of, of these sorts of tactics? I, I wish I had the answer to, to, to handle uh, this, but this is a big problem, of course, that we are seeing every day. People are wondering, especially women and people from different minorities are wondering, can they enter politics? Can they work in politics? Because they are facing hate speech every day online. They are facing uh, their mouth being shot. Uh, they are facing all kind of violence, uh, just participating in, in, in politics or, or uh, societal work. So this is something that, that people really wonder. And we can see that in local election level, even not, not only in, in national elections, but also in local elections. And this is continuous and it's, it's, um, uh, it's happening uh, in every level. So this, uh, this is, of course, a big problem. We could answer that we need more regulation, we need more discussion about the matter, we need uh, all sort of, sort of things. But there is also um, very nasty reasons uh, behind this, why this is happening. It's not only uh, happening uh, by itself. We are all also seeing that it's, happened, it's happening because of, of uh, different countries influencing and for example, in Finland, we, we saw different kind of campaigns uh, during our NATO uh, process or, or during the war, also during uh, COVID. Uh, and this wasn't only organic, but also created from, from different actors in the world. I think we should stop being naive uh, in general. Uh, I think we stu stu should, should stop being naive. There are more authoritarian countries there that are raising their heads, that are rising that are challenging the democratic values and the democratic uh, way uh, of, of, uh, of building societies. And I think democratic countries should be so much stronger fighting uh, these kind of authoritarian values that are rising. And I think hate speech, uh, online harassment, uh, misinformation that we are seeing, this is only part of that kind of, of, of world va values that we are seeing. And it's very difficult also to tackle uh, this kind of misinformation. You were on the panel before discussing about this matter. So, so it's very complex and it's also very difficult to run up to because there's always new kind of uh, forums for, for this kind of behavior, uh, new social media platforms, uh, new technologies. Uh, and for example, there has been studies shown that AI is only imitating what is happening in, in the real world. So it's also racist. It can be um, very aggressive towards women, towards minorities. So, so we are facing uh, these problems um, that are very complex. And when new technologies enter, uh, there are only uh, new problems ahead of us. And you cannot run those uh, problems regulating only because regulation takes time and these technologies are um, created every day. So it's a very complex problem. I don't have the answer how to handle that. I wish I were that there were uh, easy answers and easy solutions because it's a real problem and threat 
towards democracy and especially for different people participating in decision-making process. Did you want to add something, Jacinda? You it looked like you were... It's just I was hoping that Sada would have all the answers because we sent a study group to Finland to study what they were doing on mis- and disinformation. Um, and, and in part, it was, it was really looking at your education system because I think that is a place to start with this issue of how do you deal with disinformation online? And I'm loath to go to that place where we expect the consumer or the user to self-police or self-regulate. I think it has to be much bigger than that. But how do we create a, gener- a generation of individuals who are aware that they're going to come across that in their everyday lives, but who aren't cynical, but instead are curious? And I think that is one of the one of the traits that we need to better value is the sense of curiosity, because the loss of curiosity means that we're no longer interested in another person's perspective. We're no longer interested in... Uh, demonstrating a willingness to understand why they come at an issue in a different way or have empathy for that. We instead choose to silo ourselves and never engage in the debate in a way that is respectful and creates an environment where we might be able to see a little shift in the way that we move as a society. So curiosity in me is incredibly important. It's not really something that is encouraged in politics because in politics, we're always told as leaders that we need to know everything. Have you ever heard a politician stand up and say frequently, I don't know? And yet we are presented constantly with challenges where we don't. And the reason we don't say that is because we think to give confidence to our voters, we need to demonstrate absolute knowledge, absolutely. We need a plan. We need to know what to do to support our people and give them confidence. But we also need to feel willing to acknowledge and have the humility to acknowledge when we don't have all the information. We need to emulate that curiosity and the willingness to change our mind when the evidence demonstrates us to us that we need to. That's just one thought on the issue though. It is, it is one of the big challenges of the poly crisis, this new environment, the, the online space, which is, um, which is increasingly difficult but I am an optimist at heart. And I believe that in, within this challenge, coming back to some simple values of empathy and curiosity and, and humility may, may be part of it. Your story, you wanted to get in on that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> there are three minutes left I can see on the screen, the big themes, but let me reduce it to a very important but isolated themes. Are we going to leave the issue of young men and boys to the far-right populistic attraction through TikTok and that kind of media? Or are we going to make a reflection on it as progressives? I don't know what you see in your countries, but we see that young boys struggle more in the early school years. You see the results, we have evidence coming in, we want to be evidence-driven in our policies. We believe 10 years ago that having iPads for all kids would be the, the great entry into using new digital tools. Now we find out that there is a stolen focus. Uh, something is happening out there. Uh, should we? Uh, I don't believe in wiping out the wipe, I, iPads, but you know, my government has now put more money into restoring the books and the texts. We see from uh, studies now that from 2015 till today, the reading ability of kids in our country is going steep down, uh, especially among young boys. They simply don't read. And it's, and it's, of course, uh, a social issue, but it is going pretty much through the digital generation. 
And I, I, to me, I think this is a lot of food for thought for progressives. So how do we organize from early, uh, early time on? And, um, uh, before school, early school years, education, teachers and all the rest of it. But what really makes me uh, afraid in, in this is that the whole kind of woke identity focus that is driven from, from outside politics here is very attractive. And I think we saw something uh, uh, in the Swedish elections, general elections, that young, the young were voting differently and basically not being inside the scope of, 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 of politics, basically. And we saw in our regional elections that we had a week ago, a major right-wing turn among, among the young in schools when they kind of do their testing there. And I will not, I mean, I respect that uh, other parties may have, uh, uh, you know, success on our, uh, <laughs> and, and we may not, because we normally do good in those elections uh, among the young, but, but it, it worries me because there's something happening here in terms of attention and, and, and what, what this generation of young men, and, and they are going to move into uh, um, adult life, what kind of work life and so on. And I think we as progressives should really Pay attention to it. You can see there's only like 19 seconds left. Do you want to do closing? In 2015, you know, we got elected hugely because young people came out and voted for us in a very strong, progressive way, reacting against a, uh, a conservative government that they felt didn't share their values on climate, on a huge range of things. Uh, and reaching those young people now, not just because of the challenge of incumbency, but because there is a shift going on with what they're being exposed to online, what they're choosing to see, how they feel about where the world is going, um, is something that we absolutely have to tackle as progressives. How we, how we restore the idea, and I remember back in, in, in 2015 when we started, there was this idea that maybe we're reaching a point where it's the end of progress, where that idea that every generation would do better than the generation before because of the hard work that everyone puts into it was no longer holding. Well, now we sort of all feel it's not even a question that that promise of our societies that you would get to work hard and succeed even better than your parents, that everyone would, no longer holds. I think the question we have to figure out, we have to answer, and not just answer for ourselves in policy, but demonstrate to young people, but to everyone out there, is that it's possible to re-secure that promise. Whether it's an economic promise, promise, whether it's security in general with a rise in violence or with mental health challenges or whatever it is. Being secure in, in, the, in the promise of a better environment as well. I mean, these are the things that people are deeply anxious about. And if no one's coming with answers, well, they will turn to the people who are shouting loudest and most outraged alongside them. But there are answers. And our capacity as progressives to not just figure out those answers, because we're all about listening to the best scientists and thought leaders and academics and researchers out there, but how we can make people feel at this time of anxiety that there are solutions, there are answers, they are grounded in reasonable earnest actions that we can take as governments and institutions to tackle these problems, 
getting people to be optimistic about the future, but also comforted in their present challenges, that's where we need to connect with people. And right now, whether it's young boys being you know, distracted online or people being angered by populist parties and feeling heard and seen, um, we have a lot of work to do as progressives to get people back to realizing there are big challenges that we're all facing, but there are also solutions to those challenges. And the only way we get to those solutions is if we actually pull together, listen to each other, and, uh, and bring people along with us. Great place to end. And not just because the light's red and blanketing. Thank you so much.